Welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Cowley. And in this episode, we're going to talk about a very common presentation to the emergency department, that patient who presents with the upper GI bleed. Now, of course, this is a wide spectrum of disease from the patient who's just vomited up a little bit of blood right the way through to the life-threatening, crashing patient who's trying to vomit up their entire blood volume. GI bleeding is a really serious thing for us. Although the vast majority of patients you see will actually have low-level GI bleeds, and they, they're unlikely to come to any serious harm in the first few hours that you see them, the potential for them to have a very poor outcome later due to secondary hemorrhage or bleeding from things like varices is really quite high. And there's a whole range of different pathologies which might actually present as that upper GI bleeding. One of the first things you've got to ask yourself is, is actually this GI bleeding that you're looking at? There are a couple of mimics. Certainly people who've had an ENT bleed, so a nosebleed, for instance, who swallow a lot of blood and then vomit, they can present and look like GI bleed, but in fact they're nosebleed that just swallowed some blood. Some areas you might hear people say that they've they're coughing up blood, and you think, well, is that hemoptysis or is that vomiting? And they're unclear because the terms are often used interchangeably. So when you're doing your first history taking, then make sure that you don't miss some of these mimics. Once you've established that you think it is GI bleeding, so they're either bringing up fresh red blood, which is pretty obvious, or they're bringing up altered blood, which is that classic coffee ground, dark looking blood that they vomit. You've then got to think about the potential pathologies and how we're going to risk stratify those patients. Now, from an emergency medicine point of view, it's actually the risk stratification, which is probably more important when you first see the patient. But just while we're here, let's have a think about some of the pathologies. And the likely ones that you'll see are things like malary vice tears, a tear of the esophagus from people repeatedly vomiting. That's quite common in our practice. You've got gastritis, you've got duodenal or gastric ulceration, and you've also got varices, and particularly those ones with you know significant duodenal bleeds and significant variceal bleeds. These are life-threatening conditions, and you don't want to miss them in the ED, and you want to catch people at the stage where they're treatable. The really poorly GI bleeds are terrifying patients who are really difficult to resuscitate. So going back to first principles, if you've got that patient who's completely clapped out in front of you, the ambulance crew are holding vomit bowls full of blood, this patient is going straight into recess, If you're not a senior doctor, you're getting senior help and you're considering calling an endoscopist early whilst giving patients resuscitation. So straight back to first principles. This is why emergency medicine is straightforward. The patient looks ill. You throw every resuscitative aid at them that you can. So fluid resuscitation, wide ball cannulas, make sure they're oxygenating well. If they're not protecting their airway, you may need some help with securing their airway. And this patient, actually, as we often say, the really sick patient, from our point of view, is relatively straightforward. We know what to do in those circumstances. Simon, maybe it's the grey patients where there's that uncertainty about how unwell they are. They're the ones that often cause us the most grief. It's not the resuscitation patient. It's the patient who's come in saying they've vomited a bit of blood. You're trying to do the history, as you say, to work out where that's coming from. Is there a way in which, as part of your history and examination, you can try and use other tools to risk stratify which of these patients are going to need to stay in hospital, which of them need urgent treatment and which of them you may be able to care for in an outpatient capacity. Okay, so this is all about risk stratification, isn't it? And that's an important tool and an important skill for all emergency physicians. We can run into trouble sometimes if we just use clinical gestalt about what we think, what the patient looks like from the end of the bed. I mean, that's still quite an important tool, but there are scoring systems out there which you can help. The one which we use in Manchester and the one which I think has the best evidence behind it is something called the Glasgow Blatchford score. And that's been devised and validated to look at patients' risk of having a significant event and for them to have a significant finding on endoscopy. 
And one of the reasons why I like it, and one of the reasons why I think it gets used a lot in emergency departments, is it doesn't require the endoscopy findings, because you'll find some scores out there which will only risk stratify out of had an endoscopy, which is a bit nuts. Glasgow Batchford score uses the blood urea, which you should be able to get back fairly quickly, the haemoglobin, the systolic blood pressure, and then some other things like the pulse rate, whether they've got melina, whether they've had syncope, or whether they've got hepatic or cardiac disease associated. And so you can score your patients, and obviously bigger scores get worse prognosis. And if you can't remember how to do this, I can't remember all the numbers, you can get an app like MDCalc or something like that to calculate it for you. The key message for us is that patients who've got a score of zero can actually potentially go home, and that's about a third of the patients. Patients with higher scores do need to come into hospital. And it's interesting, it's really quite important, particularly when you look at things like the urea level, that people identify that patients can look pretty good from the end of the bed, but they've still got significant risk factors as per this score and the likelihood of finding something at endoscopy. So as we've said in podcasts before, really what we're looking for are three different things when you first go and see a patient. The first thing is, is does the patient need immediate resuscitation? That's your priority. The second thing I always encourage for our team is, does the patient need any pain relief? And many of these patients will have significant abdominal pain. And then the third one is, do you think the patient needs to stay in hospital? Can they go home? And it's that third one that we're really talking about now. So the Glasgow Blatchford score, MD Calc is excellent. In my mind, you've just got to be careful about the units for different scores, making sure that your lab is using the same units for, say, the old blood urea nitrogen bun level, they call it in the US, or urea as we just call it over here. So just make sure that you're comparing apples with apples and not apples with, you know, footballs and then you can really use that score to help you make those decisions the gbs score will pull out probably about 30 percent of the patients who present with gi bleed and they're you know fairly easy to organize so they can go home and your hospital should have a system where they can be followed up because they still need endoscopy it doesn't mean they've got no problem they still need looking at and of course if you see a patient and you're worried about them even if the gbs is zero then go and speak to somebody else and don't just discharge on the basis of a score you can still use some of your clinical abilities if you're worried talk to somebody about it. For me, that's where these scores are really important. They may well help you in the patient who looks well, who you believe is well, who has a low score, they may well be appropriate for outpatient care. But if the patient looks unwell, but for whatever reason, they still have a low score, and this happens with CURB and other scores as well. Still, for me, it's important to prioritise what the patient looks like to you. It may mean that you just ask a senior doctor to look at the patient, to add in to that picture, but don't just go on the score alone because there are some patients who can remain relatively low scoring for these things, but yet still be unwell. That's where that clinical gestalt, if you like, and the clinical assessment comes in to be so important. For the patients who score more than zero, then again, they're a range. We're going to talk about the really sick patients in a second. For the patients in the middle who are going to be admitted to hospital for inpatient endoscopy, then the approach is relatively simple. You make them comfortable, you look at their symptoms, not just pain, but things like vomiting and distress, anxiety, and you get them cannulated, you make sure they've got a blood sample with a group and save on there, you check their haemoglobin. We do a venous blood gas in the ED for these patients so we can get a rapid assessment of their metabolic status, look at their lactate, and also get a a rapid haemoglobin, and that can guide our therapy as well. For the vast majority of those patients, they'll be admitted and they'll get an endoscopy within about 24 hours. And for those patients that we're going to discharge, it's really important, again, that your emergency department has good links with your either ambulatory medical service or your endoscopy team so that you have pathways that are agreed. Now, if you've just started in a department, sometimes this can be bewildering and you may not know all the different pathways that's required for all the different conditions. But hopefully in your department, you have a little handbook or perhaps just ask your consultants, which of these patients can we send through our ambulatory medical assessment assessment area and which of them will need to be admitted. 
because there are still some places where ambulatory medicine hasn't yet formed enough, so a lot of them will still need to come into hospital. So for the low and the medium risk groups, it's quite okay and reasonably straightforward. But I think we should probably spend a little bit of time talking about the very sick patients as well, because it's quite possible that you may well get involved in the management of these patients, and they are risky. When that patient first comes in, I mean, one of the general things we'll look at is, is this patient really unwell? Are they shocked? Are they tachycardic? Are they hypotensive? Is the GCS down? And clearly they're going to go to the resus area. But there's a number of other patients who I worry about, and those are the ones who got signs of poor perfusion, they're going to go to resus, but also the ones who might have variceal bleeding, because if you've ever seen or experienced variceal bleeding, it, it it's truly terrifying at times. So Ian, how do you work out whether somebody's likely to have variceal bleeding as opposed to just other causes of GI bleed? Well, this is a really tricky thing, isn't it? And sometimes you'll get the feedback after their endoscopy and you'll be surprised about what the cause of their bleeding was. As we've always said, in emergency medicine, we want to rule out the worst case scenario first. We assume the worst and then we work backwards from there. So if you've got a patient with a large GI bleed, I would consider first that they have varices because that's the thing that's going to do for them. There are a couple of other things like aortoesophageal fistulas and things that come as a result of cancers. And I've seen at least one patient bleed out from one of those. But really start with the common things and the life-threatening things. And that would be the variceal type bleed. And if I've got a patient like that, I'm getting in touch with endoscopy early. Now, there are then questions about the therapy we're going to give because there are specific treatments. And I think that can be difficult. I find it quite difficult to judge whether somebody's got varices in the ED. There are clues. If they come in and say, I've previously had an endoscopy and it showed varices, that's incredibly helpful. Looking at the patient's notes, because they don't always know whether they've had it, if you've got electronic notes, have a look and see if there's any evidence of varices. But for some patients, it might be their first presentation, or they may just not know, or they might be from a different place. So have a look at the patient. If you find stigmata of chronic liver disease, so they're covered in spiders, they've got ascites, they've got a cap at medusae, they're yellow, then I think in that group, you've absolutely got to presume that this is a variceal bleed and treat appropriately. And we'll talk about what that is in a second. For the patients who have no stigmata of it and no particular reason why they should have varices, I think it's difficult. And we've looked around at the evidence to find out if there's a scoring system where you can work out whether somebody's got varices or if we can get consensus among a, a range of different specialities. And it's not there. This remains a bit of a clinical judgment. And that's a little bit difficult for us. But by all means, get advice, go and speak to somebody else, get another opinion, speak to your gastroenterologist, speak to a senior emergency physician. Just ask the question. I think that's the most important thing. Just ask the question, could this be variceal? Because that is going to change your priority and maybe alter some of the therapies. So Simon, you've decided that this patient could be at risk of variceal bleeding and you want to move forward with their therapy. We've informed the endoscopist early and sometimes these patients are well known both to your liver specialists and also to the endoscopy unit. What is it we need to think about in the recess room above and beyond our standard resuscitation that we talked about for most of our sick patients? What are the extras we need to think about? Okay, well, it might be a routine in your department, but I think we really do need to think about clotting in this group. Association of varices with liver disease and a number of other reasons why these patients may run into trouble. They may well have a coagulopathy. An early clotting sample, good idea. If you've got TEG or ROTEM, these systems where you can actually look at clot formation and stability, this is a group of patients who would benefit from that knowledge. If you've got a patient who you think has got variceal bleeding, then there are specific therapies such as telepressin, which is a vasoconstrictor and can reduce the amount of bleeding that these patients get. And that's important. It does have a mortality benefit. This decision is important. And if you're unsure, get, get advice around it. The other aspect is about the resuscitation of these patients in general. We say our general management. And I think that's true. But these patients often come in tachycardic and hypotensive. 
our approach to them, in my mind, is very similar to the bleeding penetrating trauma patient in that this is uncontrolled hemorrhage which can't be tamponaded and you can't put pressure on it. So they're continuing to bleed. They've often got an underlying coagulopathy. So many of the principles that we've learned around trauma resuscitation, keeping the patient warm, giving them blood products, so that's pack cells, platelets and FFP, together with perhaps TXA, going to come back to that one in a minute, is a good approach. If you've got a major hemorrhage protocol, and you should, this is a group of patients who might benefit from that. The reason why I just stopped about TXA is there's actually a randomised controlled trial about that at the moment. The evidence for TXA in GI bleeding isn't very good. So there's something called the HALT-IT trial. It's a large randomised controlled trial we're recruiting to in Manchester, and there's a number of other places around the world that are doing that. So we will get a definitive answer about TXA in the next couple of years. And as you said, there are a couple of comparisons to major trauma. If you had a patient who had a major trauma injury and was trying to bleed out, you would have a lot of hands on deck trying to save this patient's life. And really, we should have the same approach to any condition similar to that. And GI bleed is one of those. So if you've got patients who are bleeding out, they're vomiting their whole blood volume, you need hands around the bed, you need to manage it in the same way you would a trauma team. So this is a resuscitation team leader that you need here. And you may be leading again several specialties. The endoscopist might be keen to take them off to the deepest, darkest corner of the hospital in order to do their endoscopy. But you need to have a conversation about facilitating whether or not that needs to happen in the emergency department. Airway protection is important. Don't be reluctant to call an anaesthetist. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of positive action on behalf of your patient. And think to yourself, if this was a major trauma patient, what would I be doing? And then remind yourself, well, why is this any different? And go ahead and make that happen. So from a team perspective, there's a number of people I would be getting involved here. You've got your anaesthetist, as you say. You've got a senior gastroenterologist who's capable of doing the endoscopy. You've got the haematologist can be incredibly helpful in this group of patients. And it's highly likely they're going to end up on critical care. So they need to be involved and engaged in the early stages. And it's entirely possible, and we've done it many times now, that in the very severely unwell patients, we might be doing the endoscopy in resus with resuscitation ongoing. Because actually endoscopy is a relatively portable kit. Sometimes patients are just not well enough to move and you have to make that decision alongside your inpatient hospital colleagues. The endoscopy suites are often miles from resus in the deepest, darkest recesses of the hospital. It may be that they want to take them to theatre and that is another option. And often these patients will have ongoing resuscitation from critical care teams in theatre whilst the endoscopy takes place. Now, Simon, there is another piece of equipment that is often dragged out. I remember one at medical school. It's usually in a dusty drawer somewhere, and that's the Sengestack and Blakemore tube. Now, there are many procedures in emergency medicine which are rare, and there are many that you may do once in a career. Now, this is one of those procedures which I have to say I have never done and I have never seen, and I'm not even sure that I've heard anyone tell me about them seeing it or doing it either. But we should still give the Sengestatin Blakemore tube a quick mention. Like you, I have not seen it used in quite a long period of practice. And I don't know why that is. I think it's possibly because I've always worked in an endoscopy centre. So we've got rapid access to endoscopy in the ED or very rapid access to endoscopy in theatres. It is known and it is described as a temporising measure that can be used to apply pressure, particularly on variceal bleeding. So essentially what you do is you bloody great tube down the esophagus, blow a balloon up in the abdomen and pull it back. And if that stops the bleeding, it's great. If not, you then inflate what's an esophageal balloon. And it's basically a way of tamponading. Like I said before, it's very difficult to put pressure on this bleeding. This is a way of doing that internally. It's not without risk. It's not without complications. And again, I don't think 
on my experience, I would be putting one in unless I was doing it with a colleague who's got more experience. So I'd probably be doing that with a senior endoscopist. I'm, I'm lucky. I, I work with some fantastic upper GI physicians who do great things in endoscopy. So worth a mention, but not something I'd have seen, but it is again, a bit like perimortem cesarean section and those other rare procedures that we one day may need to be called upon. A procedure that you need to have in the back of your mind, mentally prepared. You need to know where the kit is in your recess room if you're leading those resuscitations because when everything goes slightly mad and the patient's trying to die, the team are going to look to you for leadership and you need to be the one who knows where everything is. So after listening to the podcast, go to your recess room, open all the drawers, just find out where the tube is just in case you should ever need it. So Simon, let's quickly recap what it is that we've talked about. Our approach to GI bleeding is pretty much the same as all our approaches in emergency medicine. Number one, is this patient really sick when they arrive? If they are, they're going to go into resus and we have a good resuscitation ABC approach to this group. If they're not too sick, then we can look at in the unshocked patients about whether or not they've got a potential to go home. And we can use objective scoring systems like the Glasgow Blackford score to do that together with a degree of clinical judgment. If you're worried about the patient, even if their scores are zero, you still need to worry about it. And that's a mechanism where we can get more people home. The GBS score is quite good for that, although they'll still need an endoscopy. For those patients who are admitted, they're fairly straightforward. They need an inpatient endoscopist. And actually, to a degree, that's a relatively simple journey for those patients. And they'll do that with our acute medical or gastroenterology colleagues. Just whizzing back to the really sick patients. So the ones who've gone into recess who are looking shocked, they're tricky. Number of things that could be going on there. We're very worried about variceal bleeding. We're giving you some clues about how you might spot that. And some of the specific treatments for patients with varices. They're complex. You need your haematologist, you need your anaesthetist, your gastroenterologist and your critical care people to be coming together, much like a trauma team does for trauma, to make sure that that patient gets the best care possible. Time critical interventions are really important in that group. We hope you found this podcast useful. As ever, we'd like to hear your comments, things that you might do in your hospital or approaches that you might take to look after this special group that we need to care for in our departments. Please feel free to contact us via Twitter or write a comment on the blog post. We'd love to hear from you. And as ever, enjoy your emergency medicine.